Father, we come as human beings created in your image, and we want to come with responsive hearts this morning, hearts that are open to you, hearts that are ready to hear you speak, hearts that are ready to submit to your leadership in our lives. I want to pray this morning for friends and neighbors and children who are with us this morning who have not yet submitted their lives to Christ. I want to pray specifically, Holy Spirit, that you would work in their hearts, that you would call them out of darkness into light. And I pray that for all of us who are presently trusting Christ, that you would likewise, Holy Spirit, help us to see the despair of living in the darkness. Or for those of us who have already come into the light, the folly of going back to live in the darkness. I pray that you would strengthen us by your word, Holy Spirit, that you would lift up Christ for all of our hearts to see. We pray these things in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Our oldest son, Caleb, has made his way through the Lord of the Rings trilogy a few times now by Tolkien. And so Nicole and I agreed to watch the first movie with him last week. And I was struck again as we watched at the use of light and darkness to represent the very presence of evil and of good. Most of you are probably familiar with the story. If not, little Frodo the Hobbit carries the dreaded ring along with other hobbits and dwarves and wizards and elves and men. And while he carries the ring and while this group goes with him in the first book and movie, most of the movie is shot in the shadows of darkness. And this darkness is spilling out from the evil lands of Tolkien's Middle Earth, Mordor, and Isengard. The miserable darkness flows from his imaginary world, helping us to feel the terrifying presence of darkness in the world. And set against the dismal, distressing darkness is the joyful home of the hobbits and the elves. The hobbits' shire is filled with rich, bold colors. And the elves' Rivendell is filled with the brilliance of light. You feel the peace and the order and the blessing of good and light set against the evil and the darkness. Now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul sketches two portraits for us this morning, portraits that present a contrast. In the first portrait, we have a life without Jesus, a life enslaved to sin and approaching God's judgment. The second portrait is a portrait with Christ, a life redeemed from sin, and instead of approaching judgment, a life approaching glory. There is a contrast this morning between the dark effects of sin and the cleansing results of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's our main idea this morning. Live like you are freed from sin eternally and reconciled to God. Live like you're freed from sin and reconciled to God. Now, there's a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's get right into it. Portrait number one, enslaved and approaching judgment. Paul begins with the terrifying, miserable, grayscale realm of darkness. Think the evil of Mordor. 
There are five realities that characterize life without Christ. First, you are dead in your sins. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Before we threw our arms around Jesus' neck in faith, we were dead. We weren't just sick. We weren't just lost. We were dead. And Paul describes us as a corpse in the grave. None of us are going to accuse Paul of flattery. He tells us we are corpses in the grave. And this is a spiritual death. We are physically alive. We breathe, we walk, we eat, we sleep, we make decisions, and we feel emotions. But Paul says we are spiritually dead while we're doing all of those things. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And to sin is simply to miss the mark that God has set. And Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, the result of our sin ultimately is death. We rebelled against the God who created us and loved us. We decided to hammer out a life on our own. We resisted His leadership and we mocked His holiness and His standards. And Paul says the result of that decision is death. And so animals die in the Garden of Eden instead of Adam and Eve. And, and lambs die in Egypt instead of the firstborn. And countless animals throughout Israel's history forfeit their lives so that God's people may live another day. But God is not a waster of life, even animal life. These countless animals die so that we understand the seriousness of sin, what sin costs us, and what God's forgiveness costs. When Israel heard the animals cry as they were killed, when they saw and smelled the blood, they knew what their sins cost, and they knew how much forgiveness cost. You may say, the cost seems too high. And I think if you feel that the cost is too high, we may underestimate God's holiness. One small coffee stain would taint a wedding gown. The brilliant purity of that gown would be compromised by the smallest coffee stain. It is hard for us to overestimate the holiness of God. He is so utterly pure, so totally blameless that we can trust our lives to Him. And like a furnace that's so hot that we can't approach it, we can't touch it in our own strength, so our sin separates us from this totally, utterly, holy, blameless God. And if the cost seems so high, we may also underestimate sin's seriousness. Our sin has introduced death into creation like cancer. Sin does to us, even sins we consider minor, they do to us what the ring did to Tolkien's character Gollum. Sin is enslaving. It's debilitating. Sin is murderous. It entraps and it dominates and it deceptively sucks the very life out of us. But the situation is even worse than that. Paul wants us to know right out of the gate that our sin problem will eventually lead to death. That's the first point. The second one is that we were disobedient along with the world. 
Look, look, look again at verse 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. We were disobedient along with the world around us. Paul says you once walked in the things that would have killed you. You walked in trespasses and sins. If you injure your back, you may begin to walk in order to compensate for your injured back, and you don't even realize that you've been walking differently until your hips and your legs begin to hurt. Paul says you are walking in a way that has altered your lives. Sin has altered your walk. It has polluted and poisoned the decisions that you make, the emotions that you feel, and the thoughts that you think. And we disobeyed God along with the world around us. We followed in the course of this world. We got onto the obstacle course and we followed right behind the world. We ran after the people around us. We got in line and we sinned just like the world around us. We spoke like the world. We thought thoughts like the world. We made decisions like the world. We felt emotions like the world. We aspired to the same things the world around us was aspiring to. We were conformed to the world's pattern of thinking and feeling and choosing. And this was a critical failure for Old Testament Israel. In 2 Kings 17, we read this summary. My people walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced, which of course led them to false idols and to pursue demonic spirits, even hurting their own children. And this isn't just Israel's problem. This is the church's problem as well. We followed the course of this world. Number three, you were deceived by Satan. You weren't only following this world. You were also deceived by Satan. Look at the rest of verse two. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Of course, standing behind the disobedience of the world around us is Satan himself. Satan is not a concept. Satan is a specific angel who led a rebellion of a third of the angels against the authority of God. Now, for 500 years, we've been singing Martin Luther's hymn that Satan's doom is sure because of Christ's victory. And yet here, Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. He has some delegated authority temporary authority from God himself. And this is a unique phrase, the prince of the power of the air. And I think Paul is simply saying that earth is not the primary dominion of Satan and his angels, and neither is heaven. He is the prince of the power of the air. And Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience, in those who are not yet in Christ, in the world, in our non-Christian friends and neighbors. This is a hard pill to swallow, but Paul wants us to understand that Satan is at work deceiving the world around us. And those of us who are in Christ were once deceived by him as well. Our culture loves autonomy, loves a sense of independence and self-determination. But we learn from Paul that that's all a facade in this world. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Do you see why spiritual warfare is so important and that we engage? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as a servant of light. In John 8, 44, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, deception, and falsehood. This is our enemy. And do you see why it's so critical that a church, Cherrydale, grounds ourselves on the authority of God's word? Not apologizing for it. God's truth becomes the foundation of our life together. If our enemy is a persistent liar who seeks to blind and deceive and destroy, then we must contend for truth. We need to preach the Bible and read the Bible and disciple the Bible and pray the Bible and counsel the Bible. We need to preach it. And if the lies are obvious, if it's a front, frontal attack and the lies are obvious, then the church will see it and reject it. And so we need to be careful and we need to expect subtle deceptions from our enemy. We must trust the Spirit's Bible to proclaim and to protect the truth in one another's hearts. That does not require endless suspicion, but it does require persistent testing. Show me from the Bible. Show me from the Bible. Test the song lyrics with the Bible. Test the culture with the Bible. Test the preacher with the Bible. Number three, you were deceived by Satan. Number four, you were driven by sinful desires. Look at verse three. He's just referred to the sons of disobedience, that is, the world among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Paul wants the Ephesians and us to see that what differentiates us between the world and ourselves is God's grace. It's not as if we were better people, therefore we were saved. We also did the things of the world. There is no room for moral superiority in the life of of Jesus's church. It is God's grace that pulls us out. We were at one time driven by sinful desires. You see, not only were we dead and disobedient and deceived, we were sinning. Here's how we once or previously lived before God saved us. Our hearts hungered for what we craved and we were driven to take it by force. We carried out the desires of our bodies and our minds. We were driven by our body's desires, our body's physical urges and appetites for power or for pleasure or for comfort or for leisure or for respect. Our bodies hungered and we went after it. And we were driven by our mind's desires. Our minds were filled with selfish ambition. We built a life around ourselves. Again, autonomy is a facade. We don't want to submit to God for freedom's sake, but Paul makes it clear that we're not actually free. This point is made by James too. In James chapter 1, verse 14, he writes, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul wants us to see that our desires are like a raging fire that's hungry to consume. And those desires can lead toward holiness if our desires are in God himself, or it can lead in sin if it's in something other than God or more than God. 
And when our raging desires take root in our hearts, they give birth to sin, and sin, as we've seen, produces death. And so if you imagine it's Friday night, and your parents are tired after a long week at work, and what they desire is peace and rest on that Friday night. And so when you miss curfew or disobey them in some way, their desire for peace and rest may very well give birth to sin. (laughs) And so they yell and they take away your phone. And that consequence is probably the healthy consequence, but their out of control anger is not. Their legitimate desire for rest and peace on Friday night after a long week is blocked by your disobedience. And this is constant. Our desires are at work and we are driven by them. And that doesn't mean that we, everything we do is bad. It means that who we are is tainted because we've fallen short of God's glory. Here's the fifth one. One more. You were destined for wrath. Look at the very end, or look at verse 3. Among whom we also, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the final piece of devastating news. Without Christ, Paul says, we are children of wrath. That's our nature. In Romans 5 verse 12, we read, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden led to the condemnation of all of his descendants. That's us. And here's the theological reality. There are two ways that each of us are guilty before God. We are guilty by constraint. That's what Paul's talking about here. We are by nature children of wrath. We are descendants of Adam, and therefore we are born sinners. We are sinners and guilty by constraint. But we are also sinners by choice. That's what we've already seen. We are driven by sinful desires. We choose to sin. And so we are sinners who sin without Christ. But it's not just death and then non-existence. That's not what Paul holds out for us. Death is the consequence of sin, but it's not just death and then non-existence. It's death and then judgment or wrath. Jesus says in John 3.36 that whoever believes in the Son, him, has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But it's more than just not seeing life. Jesus then says, but the wrath of God remains on him. Wrath is God's steady, constant response to sinners. It is not flying off the handle anger. It is God's steady, constant response to our sin. So here is a bracing call to all of us. Without Christ, we will receive just wrath from God, the wrath that we deserved for our rebellion and sin. With Christ, we receive undeserved eternal life from God. And Jesus says this is open to all who believe. This is open to anyone who believes. 
Our situation without Christ is bleak, but it is recoverable. God offers us a chance, an opportunity to break free from the darkness and to step confidently into love and light and life forevermore. And so I pray this morning that you would not live and breathe in the darkness one second longer than you have to. Jesus offers you life and love and light this morning. Come to Him by faith. Come to Him with a sincere heart and with simple words. God, I know that I've turned from you. It's evident in my life that I have turned away from you. And I deserve your wrath. I deserve the consequence. Please accept the sacrifice of Jesus in my place. Sincere heart, simple childlike faith. That's the first portrait that Paul sketches for us this morning. You were dead in your sins. You were disobedient with the world. You were deceived by Satan. You were driven by sinful desires. You were destined for wrath. Welcome to Cherrydale. But sane people are distressed by distressing news, right? If we're thinking rightly about a situation, if we're thinking about wars in other places, when we see distressing news, it is right for us to be distressed. And this is, I would argue, the most distressing reality that we could spend the last 20 minutes considering together. But the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Here's the second portrait, redeemed and approaching glory. The second portrait is filled with the rich, bold, warm colors of the Shire. And it's filled with the brilliance of Rivendell. Here are four realities that are true of every one of us who comes to faith in Christ, who leaves the darkness, who flees the darkness for life in Christ. And Paul begins with a stunningly simple phrase, but God. And this phrase tells us that God is not content with the situation as it is, that God is going to set himself against what has enslaved us, that God knows our predicament and he's not content with it. And so God rises to act on our behalf. His face tenses, his eyes narrow, his hands grip the arms of his throne and he rises to our defense. And he's determined to defeat that which has enslaved us so that we might be redeemed. And that's so instead of approaching judgment, we might approach glory. Here's the first thing that's true. You are rescued because of God's great love and his rich mercy. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Paul starts by telling us what's rattling around in God's heart that causes him to intervene. Why does he do it? What's the motivation? The motivation is rich mercy and great love. That's what's rattling around in God's heart that causes him to act. God's mercy and love aren't mere. They are not modest. He is not moderately merciful. He does not measure it out carefully. It is abundant and lavish and extra extravagant. 
It is wealth untold. It is rich mercy. It is great love. Lamentations 3.22 says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never. And His mercies never come to an end. Endless mercies, ceaseless love. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God is as merciful as he is just. His mercy is up to the brim. His justice is up to the brim. And that's hard for us to understand, but it's true and it's good. We were enslaved and approaching judgment, but God rescued us because of his great love and his rich mercy. And if you are feeling miserable about yourself because of your sin, you can't hear me. You can never get yourself so far in debt that God even breaks a sweat to pay your redemption. Never. God's mercy is rich and his love is great. Therefore, he rescued us. Number two, you are resurrected with Christ. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the key verse in these seven verses. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that is when God made us alive in Christ. We did not clean ourselves up. We did not throw water on our face and wake ourselves up. We did not make ourselves lovely. We did not make ourselves savable. We were dead and God made us alive. We were a spiritual corpse in the tomb, unresponsive, just like Lazarus. And God said, come forth and live. And so the call to God's people is to throw off those grave clothes and burn them. Burn them. Wake up from your sin. Walk away from following the world. Stop following the prince of the air. Stop being driven by your sinful passions. Flee from the wrath to come. And the only reason you can do any of those commands is because while we were dead, he made us alive. As a response to His grace, we are following Him. We are fleeing the darkness for light. Believe in Jesus. Put your trust in Him. And then burn the ships in the harbor and don't ever return. Forever cut allegiances with sin. Be made alive together with Him. And this isn't grounded, as I've said, in anything you've done. You are just responding to His grace. God's rich and great grace and love that has saved us. It's totally His work on our behalf. Now, some of us are loving our sin this morning, and we don't use those words. But by not turning from our sin, we are saying we love it. We are trampling on God's grace. We are sinning so that grace might abound. This morning should be a call to run, to cut ties forever with our sin, and to pursue the light. Some of you are weighed down with 10,000 pounds of shame and guilt over your past sins. Some of you are harboring sin in the dark right now because shame is intimidating you to leave it there. Bring your sin into the light through prayer and confession to God and with a trusted friend or an elder, and then press on. I heard Rosaria Butterfield this week in a podcast 
say that we must learn to hate our sin without hating ourselves. We must learn to hate our sin without hating ourselves. We are resurrected with Christ. And so Micah 7.18 will say, Who is a God like you? Who? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Who is a God like you? Who does that? He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. While we were dead, he made us alive in Christ. Amen? Number three, you are raised or seated with Christ. Look at verse six. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only are we resurrected from the dead, which would be great in of itself, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavens. We saw this distinction last week as well. Jesus is not just resurrected from the dead, returned from the grave, but he's raised in victory to God's right hand. This means we're not just raised back from the dead, but we are tethered to Jesus' victory. He has silenced every accuser in creation. There is no accuser who will stand and point his finger at you and condemn you. There is no one in creation to do that. Jesus is the supreme authority in heaven and on earth, in this age and in the age to come. And he says, you're with me. He says, she's with me. You stand in my shadow. You stand under my refuge. You take shelter underneath my wings. You let me be your fortress. The work that God has begun in your life will be completed. You may limp a little while longer. Our sin struggles, though losing their hold season by season, may linger. But one day, when we see him, the labor pains of life in this world will subside and we will embrace our righteousness. We are raised with Christ. We will embrace our victory in Him. And all the sad things and all the sinful things and all the suffering things will fade and they will vanish. For we are already raised and seated with Christ. Fourth and last, you are recipients of a rich inheritance. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Life for the church isn't a life of ease and comfort. We must live like we are at war, not on vacation. Jesus cautioned his disciples that they needed to count the cost before they decided to follow him. Count the cost carefully. He, God's son, had no place to lay his head. And the disciples shouldn't assume that their lives will be any easier. And so in this life, we gird ourselves for spiritual battle. We prepare to resist sin, to withstand opposition in the world, to take tremendous risks for the sake of the gospel, to sacrifice all that we can to fund the work of the gospel among the nations or go ourselves. 
The idea here is that God's people leave it all on the field and then collapse happily at the finish line with a contented smile. And what helps the church make these sacrifices and assume these costs? How do we motivate our hearts to actually do these things? For one thing, we do it because he first loved us. Our hearts are alive because he loved us first. His love is pulsating through our veins and we love him as a result. But for another thing, we are persuaded that God keeps his promises and that these eternal riches that he promises us will come to pass. We will taste them in the coming ages, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It will be ours. We will unfold it. We will unwrap it and we will experience his riches. So are you packing for a vacation or are you preparing for spiritual battle? The more comfortable life is for us, the more we need to press one another to prepare for spiritual battle. And I would say the church has never been more comfortable at any time in church history and perhaps anywhere in the world than we have been over the last generation. But gospel opposition and physical suffering will see that we are prepared for spiritual battle because it's easier to long for heaven. It is easier to long for heaven when our lives are being threatened. It's easier to long for heaven when the pressure is set against us. When we have no stable home here, we long for the one that is to come. Our comfort in America has made us vulnerable to vacation mode. So let's renegotiate terms this morning and let's depend on the Lord to press us forward toward the prize that is set before us. Let's allow our hearts to long for the city that is to come. Let's let our minds be persuaded of the coming inheritance and let's let our decisions be informed by the age that is to come. There you have it, two portraits. One of a person without Jesus living in spiritual Mordor or Isengard. Spiritually dark as sin spreads like cancer in our minds and in our bodies and in our emotions and in creation. Separation from God and alienation from others that spreads and grows outside of our control. And then when sin has had its way with us, it leaves us enslaved and dead and destined for judgment. Oh, but that second portrait. Oh, that Jesus would ask us to sit down so that he might sketch our portrait a second time. Oh, that God might sketch us united to Jesus, living in this world but not of this world, living in the spiritual shire or Rivendell, free at last. No longer dead, but alive. No longer in sins, but clothed in Christ's righteousness. No longer disobedient with the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds. No longer deceived by Satan, but seeing him defeated and laid prostrate before the feet of our risen King. No longer driven by the passions of our flesh, but purified and washed as a bride waiting for her groom. No longer children of wrath, but adopted 
as sons and daughters of our glorious Father. Free at last is the second portrait. Free at last. Now let's live like we're freed from sin and reconciled to God. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to see the result of darkness and the result of light. Empower us to choose the light, to choose Christ, to choose love and life and light. Spirit, we pray that you would do for us, that you would change our hearts in ways that we can't. You would take the truth of God's love for us, whether we've heard it the first time or the thousandth time. Impress this truth on our hearts so that we cannot avoid it. Holy Spirit, empower us to live as people of the light. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.